Chapter Two of Ravensdene Court by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ravensdene Court. It was very evident to Clegg and myself, interested spectators, that the newcomer's announcement, sudden and unexpected as it was, had had the instantaneous effect of making Quick forget his beef and his rum. Indeed, although he was only halfway through its contents. He pushed his plate away from him as if food were just then nauseous to him. His right hand lifted itself in an arresting, commanding gesture, and he turned a startled eye on the speaker, looking him through and through as if in angry doubt of what he had just said. "'What's that?' he snapped out. "'What says you? Say it again. No, I'll say it for you, to make sure that my ears ain't deceiving me.' You met a man, hereabouts, what asked you if you knew where there was graves with a certain name on them, and that name was Netherfield? Did you say that? I asked you, serious? The drover, or shepherd, or whatever he was, looked from Quick to me and then to Clegg, and smiled as if he wondered at Quick's intensity of manner. You've got it all right, mister, he answered. That's just what I did say. A stranger chap he was, never seen him in these parts before. Quick took up his glass and drank. There was no doubt about his being upset, for his big hand trembled. Where was this here? he demanded. Recent? Two nights ago, replied the man readily. I was coming home latish from Aldwick, and met with this here chap a bit this side of Lesbury. We walked a piece of the road together, talking, and he asked me what I've told you. Did I know these parts? Was I a native hereabouts? Did I know any churchyards with the name Netherfield on gravestones? And I said I didn't. But there was such like places in our parts where you couldn't see the gravestones for the grass, and these might be what he was asking after. And when we came to them crossroads, where it goes to Denwick one direction and Bulmer the other, he left me, and I ain't seen aught of him since, nor heard. Quick pushed his empty glass across the table, with a sign to Clegg to refill it. At the same time he pointed silently to his informant, signifying that he was to be served at his expense. He was evidently deep in thought by that time, and for a moment or two he sat staring at the window and the blue sea beyond, abstracted and pondering. Suddenly he turned again on his informant. "'What like was this here man?' he demanded." "'I couldn't tell you, mister,' replied the other. "'It was well after dark, and I never saw his face. "'But for the build of him, a strong-set man like myself, "'and just about your height. "'And now I come to think of it, spoken your way, "'not as we do in these quarters. "'A stranger, like yourself, seafaring man I took him for.' "'And you ain't heard of his being about?' asked Quick. "'Not a word, mister,' affirmed the informant. "'He went Denwick way when he left me.' That's going inland. Quick turned to me. I would like to see that map of yours again, Master, if you please, he said. I ought to have provided myself with one before I came here. He spread the map out before him, and after taking another gulp of his rum, proceeded to trace roads and places with the point of his finger. Denwick, he muttered. Aye, I see that. And these places where there's a little cross, that'll mean there's a church there? I nodded an affirmative, silently watching him, and wondering what this desire on the part of two men to find the graves of the Netherfields might mean. 
and the landlord evidently shared my wonder, for presently he plumped his customer with a direct question. "'You seem very anxious to find these Netherfield gravestones,' he remarked, with good-humoured inquisitiveness. "'And so apparently does another man. Now, I've been in these parts a good many years, and I've never heard of them, never even heard the name.' "'Nor me,' said the other man. "'There's none of that name in these parts, twixt Almouth Bay and Boodle Point. I ain't never heard it.' "'And he's a native,' declared the landlord born and bred and brought up here wasn't you jim never been away from it assented jim with a short laugh never been farther north than belford south than walkworth west than whittingham and as for east i reckon you can't get much further that way than where we are now not unless you take to the water you can't said clegg no we ain't heard of no netherfields hereabouts quick seemed indifferent to these remarks he suddenly folded up the map, returned it to me with a word of thanks, and plunging a hand in his trousers pocket, produced a fistful of gold coins. "'What's to pay?' he demanded. "'Take it out of that. All we've had, and do help yourself to a glass and a cigar.' He flung a sovereign on the table and rose to his feet. "'I must be stepping along,' he continued, looking at me. "'If so be as there's another man seeking for—' But at that he checked himself remaining silent until Clegg counted out and handed over his change. Silently, too, he pocketed it and turned to the door. Clegg stopped him with an arresting word and a motion of his hand. "'I say,' he said, "'no business of mine, to be sure, but don't you show that money of yours over-readily hereabouts, in places like this, I mean. There's folk up and down these roads that'd track you for miles on the chance of, eh, Jim?' "'Aye, and farther,' assented Jim. "'Keep it close, master.' Quick listened quietly. Just as quietly he slipped a hand to his hip pocket, brought it back to the front, and showed a revolver. "'That and me together, eh?' he said significantly. "'Bad lookout for anybody that came between us and the light.' "'They might come between you and the dark,' retorted Clegg. "'Take care of yourself.' "'Tisn't a wise thing to flash a handful of gold about, my lad.' Quick made no remark. He walked out onto the cobbled pavement in front of the inn, and when I had paid Clegg for my modest lunch, and had asked how far it was to Ravensdean Court, I followed him. He was still in a brown study, and stood staring about him with moody eyes. "'Well,' I said, still inquisitive, about this apparently mysterious man, "'what next?' Are you going on with your search? He scraped the point of a boot on the cobblestones for a while, gazing downwards almost as if he expected to unearth something. Suddenly he raised his eyes and gave me a franker look than I had so far had from him. Master, he said in a low voice, with a side glance at the open door of the inn, I'll tell you a bit more than I've said before. You're a gentleman, I can see, and such keeps counsel. I've an object, and a particular object, in finding them graves. That's why I've travelled all this way, as you might say, from one end of England to the other. And now, arriving where they ought to be, I find another man after what I'm after. Another man. Have you any idea who he may be? I asked. He hesitated, 
and then suddenly shook his head. "'I haven't,' he answered. "'No, I haven't, and that's a fact. For a minute or two, in there, I thought that maybe I did know, or at any rate had a notion, but it's a fact I haven't. All the same, I'm going Denwick way to see if I can come across whoever it is, or get news of him. Is that your road, master?' No, I replied, I'm going some way farther along the headlands. Well, I hope you'll be successful in your search for the family gravestones. He nodded very seriously. I'm not going out of this country till I've found them, he asserted determinedly. It's what I've come three hundred miles for. Good day, master. He turned off by the track that led over the top of the headlands and as long as I watched him, went steadily forward without even looking back, or to the right or left of him. And presently I, too, went on my way, and rounding another corner of the cliff, left the lonely inn behind. But as I went along, following the line of the headlands, I wondered a good deal about Salter Quick and the conversation at the Mariner's Joy. What was it that this hard-bitten, travel-worn man, one who had seen evidently much of wind and wave was really after i gave no credence to a story of the family relationship it was not at all likely that a man would travel all the way from devonshire to northumberland to find the graves of his mother's ancestors there was something beyond that but what it was very certain that quick wanted to come across the tombs of the dead and gone netherfields however for whatever purpose certain too that there was another man who had the same wish that complicated matters and it deepened the mystery why did two men seafaring men both of them arrive in this out-of-the-way spot about the same time unknown to each other but each apparently bent on the same object and what would happen if as seemed likely they met it was impossible to find an answer to these questions but the mystery was there all the same the afternoon remained fine, and for the time of year, warm, and I took advantage of it by dawdling along that glorious stretch of sea-coast, taking into the full its rich stores of romantic scenery and suggestion of long-past ages. Sometimes I sat for a long time, smoking my pipe on the edge of the headlands, staring at the blue of the water, the curl of the waves on the brown sands, conscious most of the compelling silence, and only dimly aware of the calling of the seabirds on the cliffs. Altogether, the afternoon was drawing to its close, when rounding a bluff that had been in view before me for some time, I came in sight of what I felt sure to be Ravensdean Court, a grey-walled, stone-roofed Tudor mansion that stood at the head of a narrow valley or ravine, Dean, they call it in these parts, though a dean is really a tract of sand, while these breaks in the land are green and thickly treed, through which a narrow, rock-encumbered stream ran murmuring to the sea. Very picturesque in its old-worldness it looked in the mellowing light. The very place, I thought, which a bookman and an antiquary, such as I had heard the late owner to be, would delight to store with his collections. A path that led inland from the edge of the cliffs took me after a few minutes walking to a rustic gate which was set in the boundary wall of a small park within the wall rose a belt of trees mostly oak and beech their trunks obscured by a thick undergrowth 
Passing through this, I came out on the park itself, at a point where, on a well-kept green, a girl, whom I immediately took to be the niece, recently released from the schoolroom, of whom Mr. Raven had spoken in his letter, was studying the lie of a golf-ball. Behind her, carrying her bag of sticks, stood a small boy, chiefly remarkable for his large boots and huge tam-o'-shanter bonnet, who, as I appeared on the scene, was intently watching his young mistress's putter, wavering uncertainly in her slender hands, before she ventured on what was evidently a critical stroke. But before the stroke was made, the girl caught sight of me, paused, seemed to remember something, and then swinging her club came lightly in my direction. A tallish, elastic-limbed girl, not exactly pretty, but full of attraction, because of her clear eyes, healthy skin, and general atmosphere of life and vivacity. Recently released from the schoolroom, though she might be, she showed neither embarrassment nor shyness on meeting a stranger. Her hand went out to me with ready frankness. "'Mr. Middlebrook?' she said inquiringly. "'Yes, of course. I might have known you'd come along the cliffs. Your luggage came this morning, and we got your message. But you must be tired after all those miles.' I'll take you up to the house and give you some tea. I'm not at all tired, thank you, I answered. I came along very leisurely, enjoying the walk. Don't let me take you from your game. Oh, that's all right, she said carelessly, throwing her putter to the boy. I've had quite enough. Besides, it's getting towards dusk, and once the sun sets, it's soon dark in these regions. You've never seen Ravenstein Court before? "'Never,' I replied, glancing at the house, which stood some two or three hundred yards before us. "'It seems to be a very romantically situated, picturesque old place. I suppose you know all its nooks and corners?' She gave her shoulders, squarely set, well-developed ones, a little shrug, and shook her head. "'No, I don't,' she answered. "'I never saw it before last month. It's all that you say, picturesque and romantic enough.' and queer i believe it's haunted that adds to its charm i remarked with a laugh i hope i shall have the pleasure of seeing the ghost i don't she said that is i hope i shan't the house is odd enough without that but you wouldn't be afraid would you i asked looking more closely at her i don't know she replied you'll understand more when you see the place there's a very odd atmosphere about it. I think something must have happened there some time. I'm not a coward, but really, after the daylight's gone... You're adding to its charms, I interrupted. Everything sounds delightful. She looked at me half inquiringly, and then smiled a little. I believe you're pulling my leg, she said. However, we'll see. But you don't look as if you would be afraid and you're not a bit like what I thought you'd be, either. "'What did you think I should be?' I asked, amused at her candour. "'Oh, I don't know. A queer, snuffy, bald-pated old man, like Mr. Cazalet, she replied, booky and papery and that sort of thing. And you're quite something else, and young.' "'The frost of thirty winters have settled on me,' I remarked with mock seriousness. They must have been black frosts, then, she retorted. No, you're a surprise. 
I'm sure Uncle Francis is expecting a venerable, dry-as-dust sort of man. I hope he won't be disappointed, I said, but I never told him I was dry-as-dust, or snuffy, or bald. It's your reputation, she said quickly. People don't expect to find such learning in ordinary young men in tweed suits. Am I an ordinary young man, then, I demanded? Really? Oh, well, you know what I mean, she said hastily. You can call me a very ordinary young woman, if you like. I shall do nothing of the sort, said I. I have a habit of always calling things by their right names, and I can see already that you are very far from being an ordinary young woman. So you begin by paying me compliments, she retorted with a laugh. Very well, I've no objection, which shows that I'm human anyhow. But here is my uncle. I had already seen Mr. Francis Raven advancing to meet us, a tall, somewhat stooping man with all the marks of the Anglo-Indian about him, a kindly face burnt brown by the equatorial suns, old-fashioned, grizzled moustache and whiskers, the sort of man that I had seen more than once coming off big liners at Tilbury and Southampton, looking as if England, seen again after many years of absence, were a strange country to their rather weary, wondering eyes. He came up with outstretched hands. I saw at once that he was a man of shy, nervous temperament. "'Welcome to Ravenstein Court, Mr. Middlebrook,' he exclaimed in quick, almost deprecating fashion. "'A very dull and out-of-the-way place to which to bring one used to London. But we'll do our best. You've had a convoy across the park, I see.' he added with a glance at his niece. "'That's right.' "'As charming a one as her surroundings are delightful, Mr. Raven,' I said, assuming an intentionally old-fashioned manner. "'If I am treated with the same consideration I have already received, I shall be loath to bring my task to an end.' "'Mr. Middlebrook is a bit of a tease, Uncle Francis,' said my guide. I found that out already. He's not the paper and parchment person you expected. Oh, dear me, I didn't expect anything of the sort, protested Mr. Raven. He looked from his niece to me and laughed, shaking his head. These modern young ladies, ah, he exclaimed. But come, I'll show Mr. Middlebrook his rooms. He led the way into the house and up the great stair of the hall to a couple of apartments which overlooked the park. I had a general sense of big spaces, ancient things, mysterious nooks and corners. My own rooms, a bedchamber and a parlour, were delightful. My host was almost painfully anxious to assure himself that I had everything in them that I was likely to want, and fussed about from one room to the other, seeing the details that I should never have thought of. "'You'll be able to find your way down,' he said at last, as he made for the door. We dine at seven. Perhaps there'll be time to take a little look round before then, after we've dressed. And I must introduce Mr. Cazalet. You don't know him personally? Oh, a remarkable man, a very remarkable man indeed, yes. I did not waste much time over my toilet, nor, apparently, did Miss Marcia Raven, for I found her in a smart gown in the hall when I went down at half-past six and she and I had taken a look at its multifarious objects before Mr. Raven appeared on the scene, followed by Mr. Cazalet. 
one glance at this gentleman assured me that our host had been quite right when he spoke of him as remarkable he was not merely remarkable but so extraordinary in outward appearance that i felt it difficult to keep my eyes off him End of chapter two